You're listening to the ConsumerFi Podcast, powered by Norridge, loan software that accelerates change. Everybody, excited to have Jonathan Smoke on the podcast today. Jonathan's the chief economist of Cox Automotive. And if you've ever been to a National Automotive Finance Association uh, annual conference, you will know Jonathan because he's the man who packs the butts in the seats with his uh, updates on the economy and the industry. Jonathan, uh, welcome to the Consumer Fight Podcast. Uh, thanks, Joel. It's great to be here. And thanks again for all of the um, support of the National Automotive Finance Association. Um, we, we really appreciate that. And uh, we'll, we'll see you again this year, right? Will we be seeing you at the conference? Are you on the docket? I think we are trying to make sure that that's going to happen. Okay, so. great. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that everybody looks forward to. And um, yeah, we're just kind of putting that thing together. It's going to be in... Uh, Summertime in Plano, same place we had it the last time. So um, might as well go to where all the juice is, right? I mean, everything I always tell people, everything in auto revolves around around Dallas or Texas at large. It is amazing really- how much does revolve in Dallas. I, I can go to Dallas and and meet with like 20 different clients. Uh, it's incredible. And I've had my second shot. So I'm I'm fully go. vaccinated and ready to go. I'm waiting for my second one in about two weeks here. Um, which will be nice. It'll be, it's a bit of a ride. I, AFSA independence is at the end of May. So I'll be going out to uh, Fort Lauderdale for that. Um, Jonathan, you know, maybe, I, yeah, I, I have your bio, but you know, it's probably more interesting for you to kind of throw out, you know, what are the, um, the, like the broader segments and things that you kind of tend to track in your role as the chief economist at Cox? What are the things that, um, that you try to keep a pulse on? Well, I, you know, my background has prior to auto was in housing. So I've I've spent my entire career really trying to fundamentally understand and predict consumer demand. And so understanding the consumer, the financial health of the consumer, um, looking at credit and having perspectives on credit because credit is such a vital part of, of vehicle sales um, has, has been crucial uh, to it. The automotive market is complex. So uh, <laughs> I actually was preparing, we're, we're trying to help a lot of associations with conversations that they're starting to have more frequently in DC uh, with potentially senators and congressmen who don't really know that much about the automotive market. And it's co- it's a complex business because um, you've got to talk about new vehicle production and of course, new vehicle sales get all of the attention, even though 70% of the sales are, are used sales. Um, you've got importing and exporting. You've got all kinds of supply chain uh, types of things happening. In the used market, vehicle values are uh, an absolute um, you know, important part of understanding and predicting what's going on. And you know, part of the thing, part of what attracted me to come to Cox in the first place and give up what was... I was well known in real estate and, and a lot of my friends were like, why on earth are you leaving this industry uh, to go do something else? And when I looked at the potential of working with all of the data sources, Mannheim, DealerTrack, AutoTrader, Kelly Blue Book, I'm like, here's a chance to learn something new. I love cars. So, you know, that's a real 
a real plus, um, but to potentially create insights that never have been uh, created before was very tempting to me. And actually the last year in this pandemic has really, uh, all the barriers came down overnight when we were trying to make sense out of what was going on last March. And yeah. so every day I sort of have to poke myself to the incredible amount of data that I can see on how yesterday was, um, you know, for, for the industry and the different pockets. So um, <laughs> there's no single metric for me and it depends sort of on the situation, but, you know, I would absolutely say I'm always focused on the consumer because okay. the consumer is the center part of this. That's right. And that was, uh, thank you, Jonathan, for, for assisting us, uh, uh, Jack Tracy, the executive director of National Automotive Finance Association, and I, we have uh, kind of an ongoing dialogue with the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. We were able to meet with them last week, and and we did we definitely cited your your data um, in in the slide deck, and um, you know the themes that we spoke about. Um, there was a lot of uh, consistency because um, obviously you're seeing the data and what we did in terms of adding to that data was went down the Bayesian's uh, inference path and just asked our lenders you know what are you seeing and and impose that into the into the to the messaging and it was very helpful um very helpful to have that kind of dialogue and we look forward to having that kind of dialogue ongoing and we'd like to have uh, folks from the bureau you know at our conferences and such so so thanks for for supporting us and the rest of the industry i have to thank you for that um Starting with the consumer, I think is 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 the right thing to do. So, but maybe we talk a little bit about the state of the consumer today and what you're seeing, and um, and then maybe get into a little bit of, of of kind of like what where the direction we believe is taking us. And obviously, the consumer is is baked into like supply side issues with vehicles, with pricing, with the larger economy, with employment. All those things come into play. But let's definitely start with that. So, in terms of the American consumer, and um, Obviously, non-prime are, are kind of like what we're really interested in with with the NAF, but I think we can think very broadly. Um, what are some of the things that you've been seeing on the consumer side? Have they been seeing strain? Have they been receiving help, forbearance, the government programs? What how what have you been seeing? So we we clearly had the impact of the lockdowns last year, and that disrupted every consumer, uh, every credit tier, every income level was in an extreme state of uncertainty. And I would say the data for last early last spring indicated virtually about virtually everyone, no one was untouched from, from having some impact to income. Hours reduced, uh, furloughed, um, uh, pay cut, uh, you know, lots, lots of higher income households actually had uh, on direct wages, a reduction in, in wages for several months last year because businesses uh, were, were trying to ensure that they could stay in business when there was so much uncertainty. But then as we basically started to see more of the economy opening back up, and it started in many places in the country at the end of April, in the second half of April, we really saw a lot of that initial loss uh, wiped off the books. But that's when sort of the, the time frame of the K-shaped recovery uh, really started to come into its own because you, there was absolutely a bifurcation that uh, those who mm -hmm. were in the jobs that could work from home, like we're doing right now, um, as, as well as uh, those who were 
in sectors that were vitally in, important um, to, to the economy. They were busy, they were um, uh, being compensated, and then the stock market started to recover, and then the housing market started to heat up. And so for the highest credit tiers who tend to be older, tend to be the wealthiest households, tend to have the highest incomes, it turned into be an incredible year, uh, especially from a improvement in uh, fundamental financial condition and, mm -hmm. and wealth. But that wasn't necessarily the case for the other end of the K um, because the, they were disproportionately the households who were more likely to have not been able to go back to work either because they were in sectors like the service sector or hospitality and, and um, that th those sectors actually haven't fully recovered yet and probably yeah. won't until later this year, but also because some people had health conditions and, and, and they couldn't, or there was fear. Uh, there were just, there was clearly, we were going to have to go through a period of time where we had to deal with an abnormal amount of unemployed uh, people. And so then it became, are we supporting as a government, are we doing the things that are necessary to uh, support those who are most negatively impacted? And early on, the support was fantastic with the passage of the CARES Act, um, but we really saw essentially no other significant action. So when elements of the CARES Act, like enhanced unemployment benefits, some would argue were too rich initially, and that's part of why they couldn't get political agreement um, to continue them uh, last year. But then we also were flirting with the precipice of the pandemic unemployment assistance, uh, which extended unemployment benefits beyond the traditional mm -hmm. state benefits, which typically expire at six months. All of that started to wane. And, and we saw that almost perfectly illustrated in auto loan severe delinquencies last year. We saw delinquencies immediately fall and, and be below normal levels, and they got lower and lower as the year progressed until August. And August started to see severe delinquencies start to tick up again, and we had sequential deterioration in the delinquency rate uh, every, every month through the end of the year and into January. Mm -hmm. But... Um, we had two things happen at the end of the year. We had the $900 billion stimulus program, which provided the, you know, the $600 stimulus uh, payments, but provided for uh, the pandemic assistance being extended, but also provided um, enhanced unemployment benefits, as well as some money to help address uh, accrued back rents and other things that were hanging out there as another potential worry. And then you had the American Rescue Plan, which, you know, when politically, when we were trying to judge what would happen with, with um, the economy this year, back in October, we thought the best that we would see in another round of stimulus was probably around eight or $900 billion. Instead, we had the 900 billion in December, we had 1.9 billion um, in March, exactly what the president asked for. There was no, no reduction in that. And, and so we, the story about the K-shaped recovery, which has still got a lot of popular uh, momentum that there's this looming disaster about to happen uh, and, and um, subprime and, and lower income consumers are in a horrible situation. I would argue the data suggests the exact 
opposite uh, is, is happening. That in fact, because of the cash payments, enhanced unemployment benefits, addressing of the rents in arrears, the pandemic assistance that is going to be in place through the end of September, which is well past all of the current estimates for reaching effective herd immunity. It actually means that the lower two income uh, quintiles uh, will have more disposable income this year than they did in 2019. But Mm -hmm. actually, it's probably going to go down as one of the best springs and summers in their lives uh, in terms of the amount of money that they have available to spend. And so it wasn't surprising to me to see severe delinquency rates fall in February because it was the Mm -hmm. beginning of, of that happening. And we've yet, uh, I just got the March numbers. This wasn't something that I I was able to share with you before your meeting um, with the CFPB. And actually, just as I expected, March delinquencies came down again. Um, So the, the, the risk of things getting worse, especially getting worse this year, I think has greatly been diminished. Um, And like you, one of my tests, of course, I'm very data driven, but I also, I'm constantly presenting and sharing this stuff with dealers, lenders, manufacturers. uh, And I can tell you that um, this resonates with everyone and what everybody's seeing. And I would actually say what I'm seeing in, in March, March was a, one of the best months in history uh, for retail vehicle sales. And I believe a key reason for, Mar- uh, for March's strength was that we actually saw subprime perform uh, and play a bigger part of vehicle sales. And it's happening because credit is loosening, um, not in a bad way, in a good way, because it's been tighter since the pandemic began, and it was subprime that didn't participate in last year. Yeah, participating now, and I would argue that that wouldn't be happening if lenders didn't feel very confident about the future uh, with the economy, plus, of course, the performance of their own uh, loan portfolio. Yeah. So within those numbers, obviously these are pre-originated, right? Contracts that were that were put in, a lot of them were contracts that were put in place before the pandemic. And so you see the effect because you talked about a bifurcation in populations. We have people that were on the okay side of the K-shaped recovery. You could assume that none of these are really subprime uh, consumers, but I, I don't know that I could make that, that, that assignment. But, but then on the losing side, what I've been calling it is more of a it's not structural, but it kind of is. It's 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 something that, as far as I'm concerned, that the people in these industries and the industries themselves are going to require some assistance in order to get themselves back to a healthy place. Now, whether that involves a replacement of resources or re, you know reutilizing the ones that were already in there, I, I don't know. But I kind of wonder about looking at the delinquencies, the 30 to 59, the 60 plus, the things that we normally look at, I saw the same thing. I was looking at Kroll numbers where the numbers were just on a positive downward trend coming into the pandemic, went up a little bit, and now it seems to be normalizing or flat. It should should kind of maybe, I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out is where's that equilibrium point. But at what, what I'm seeing so far is that we are still at if we settle in at some level that is indicated by the March figures, we look as though we're better than we were before the pandemic. 
Yes. And better than what you would call normal. Um, and, and I think that that's an important distinction because last year was severely abnormal uh, in terms of loan performance. Um, you know, whether you're looking at the Fed data that the, the New York Federal Reserve Bank uh, publishes every quarter, sure. or some of the data series I can see from Experian or Equifax, it would indicate that last year was one for the records in terms of, of loan performance. You, you had abnormally low delinquencies, abnormally low defaults, abnormally low um, write-offs. And for that to be happening during a recession of epic perf- uh, proportions, yeah, this further uh, astounds the mind. But one of the things we have to be careful with in terms of managing expectations for like regulatory agencies, that an increase in delinquencies or defaults relative to last year uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a return to to normalcy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we and we talked a little bit about, about this before we started recording, but shifting the gear from the consumer over to the supply side, but we're not going to escape the consumer because the supply side issues do impact the consumer, obviously. Um, we saw some crazy stuff with the supply side last year, uh, obviously with auctions and uh, retails being closed for some time, but then it kind of came back. And now we have this perfect storm. We've got petroleum issues. We've got uh, chip manufacturer issues. Um, and this is the thing, even though I'm talking about the subprime consumer that's is going to be purchasing an indirect, you know, it's an indirect transaction. So we're not talking about buying a new car here, but the supply flow through to them with the lease returns and the rest of it has been disrupted. And so I wonder if in order to make deals happen, what is that impact ultimately to the consumer and the lender? My guess would be higher LTV deals, um, maybe less uh, percentage down. Um, And then obviously, if you are in a K-shaped situation where you do not possess a job and you can't prove that, I find it hard to think that those individuals are going to be able to get a loan if you can't prove that you have income and the rest of it. So the supply side issues, what have you, what have you been seeing on, have you been seeing the same things? I mean, I was just mentioning, you know, just observations that aren't really bounded in data. (laughs) That's why you're here. (laughs) Well, to, to that end, uh, one of the things that we were able to start producing at the end of last year are, are, auto loan credit indices uh, based on dealer track auto auto loan data. Um, And so uh, specifically every month I'm looking at approval rates, subprime share, yield spreads, terms on loans to basically judge over time. Are we seeing uh, conditions indicate that things are tighter or looser? Uh, There's a well-regarded index from the Mortgage Bankers Association for the mortgage market. That was my inspiration for this. Oh, that's cool. And um, that it's that index that supports my thesis very strongly that March um, was uh, a return to lending conditions that we had prior to the pandemic. The index is still modestly tighter than we were a year ago, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's improving and improving dramatically. The subprime share was the variable that changed the most, but also the yield spreads narrowed again an indication of of lenders feeling more confident about the future i think that's directly related to the economy their existing book performance as well as um 
uh, the expectations that they have uh, of some of that performance can continuing in, into the future. And then of course, vehicle values, because um, you know, uh, an, an, an asset right now, we've seen two years in a row of price appreciation and on used vehicles. So l- losses are going to be a fraction of what they traditionally would be um, because of how strong that is. And so it creates that in that environment. The one metric that you that would surprise you based on what you mentioned was that I, I do look at down payments or the or the loan to value and and we are seeing um, almost record percentage levels in um, down payment amounts uh, relative to the loan amount. And I actually think that's well reflective of two things. It's supply and demand. On the supply side, the consumers have plenty of cash right yeah. now. And I mean, there's $3.4 trillion sitting in bank accounts in America that did not exist a year ago. That's 15% of GDP. Um, so there's plenty of catch. Yeah. Uh, the, but the other part of that is not necessarily what the lenders are demanding to manage risk because they're approving loans faster. Uh, we're seeing more subprime. They're, they're narrowing spreads, um, at least you know so far in, in, well, that was the case in March. And I think it's going to continue in April. But I think it's reflective of the vehicle value books are not keeping up with what's happening in the marketplace. So to make the loan to value calculations work, you have to put more money down um, because the values are four to six behind, four to six percent behind what's really happening in the marketplace. <laughs> so um I imagine the housing market is going through a very similar underwriting challenge right now with how quickly uh, home prices are, are accelerating too. But if that's the only problem you're going to have, it's 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 a good problem to have. And the cost of money is, is still pretty cheap for, I'm thinking on the mortgage side. How about on the consumer side? Do you guys look at the rates that are being fed through? Uh, you mentioned the the spreads, but the rates themselves, the the cost of capital for the consumer, is that change significantly or are lenders taking advantage of the opportunity to to maybe get a little bit more yield? Uh, we definitely saw them strive for yield last year. So the spreads widened and that's why, you know, when you look at consumer rates, um, there's a lot of people who expect, well, if Fed cut rates to zero, it should be the best, uh, I should be seeing the best rates ever, but rates are influenced more by the longer term yields. Um, and we've, we saw yields fall last year, but in consumer rates, we saw mortgage rates fall more than auto rates on yeah. average. Yeah. But you also had a substantial amount, and we still see an elevated amount of 0% um, rate offers from the captives. Uh, you know, we're still seeing roughly a 10% share of all retail, new retail vehicle sales are with 0% offers. Um, so that helps that helps rates uh, not move up dramatically uh, when like yields are going up. Uh, but when you dig into who's getting zero percent deals, it's absolutely the highest credit. It's tier. like eight, 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 eight hundred, eight twenty plus. Yeah, but subprime, subprime last year barely improved. Um, that's where we saw the yield spread widen the most, and it made perfect sense. If you it does. Agree. Yeah, it does to me too. Because I think I think we've been on a downward trajectory in terms of year-over-year originations to that population. And you think about vintages within a like within a self-contained company, 
if I'm originating at a certain level, I have a hundred million dollar portfolio, but then I'm, I'm originating less and less each month. That portfolio is aging and I'm not replenishing with um, new like assets that would have the same arc of performance. And so you're changing the denominator. And that was a big argument that was made a counter to the Wall Street Journal arg- uh, article that came out that that Bill Himpler and the AFSA folks kind of said, hey, hold on, you kind of threw us all in this giant bucket of subprime when in fact you were really talking about deep subprime and not the entire population, right? Yes. They were very narrowly looking at uh, a part of deep subprime. And, and actually, I would argue drawing some questionable conclusions uh, about things getting worse, mixing fourth quarter with February data. So there's, uh, there was some comparisons of historical numbers that didn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I, I applaud what ASA put, put out on, on that front. I think they definitely were speaking more to the truth that I see than what was reported in that article. Yeah. So the, um, so we've talked a little bit about the supply side. We've talked a little bit about the credit uh, or, or the consumer. Um, is there anything within credit and loan performance that uh, we haven't really kind of touched on um, that was was kind of interesting or unique that you're keeping an eye on as we kind of come out of the pandemic? Because that's I think where we want to spend a little more time is hey, what is what does our crystal ball kind of say? One is obviously repossessions that we're going to dive into, but on the credit and loan performance, um, is there anything else that you were seeing that you're kind of keeping an eye on, especially as you as you built up that that really cool metric that I want to make sure I get a chance to kind of look at and see if I can get the recipe from you. <laughs> well, we just, we just published March actually this week. You did it on the on the website. Um, okay, just go to, where say, where do we go for that? We go to uh, uh, coxautoinc.com, uh, Look for the newsroom and and uh, the market insights section. Cool. And, and then, by the way, that's where all of all of my team's material gets published. So everything, and we're publishing stuff every almost every day, certainly awesome. every week. I would say the only other thing that I see from a consumer credit perspective is just the improved quality of the loans um, outstanding uh, because you had you mentioned the the decline that's been happening in subprime lending yeah um, you also had a fairly high level of payoffs occurring as people had more cash and and they were paying down debts it's not as dramatic as what you see with credit card balances uh, in terms of what the credit bureaus are reporting but there's also been a decline uh, you know, uh, in, uh, in the outstanding loans. And I think it's, it's also improved the quality of, of, of what's left because we haven't been originating new loans, uh, at the same broader profile. We've had right. a very, um, richer mix, if you will, of higher credit tiers in the loans. So, so when somebody asks me to project what repossessions are going to be for the year, well, that's a function of the financial condition in the consumer, what we expect going on with the economy, but it's also absolutely a function of what, what, is, the, what is the book look like right now? Um, and with fewer subprime loans, um, which drive 60% or more of all defaults, you're going to have a lower default rate because the consumers that are left are far less likely to default. There's a reason <laughs> why credit scores are predictive of performance um, because historically subprime has been an indicator of, of much more likely to default. 
Mm. One of the big questions that the Bureau had, you know, obviously we all have is, is, is there a backlog of repossessions? And if so, um, you know, when do we think that would hit and, and in what magnitude? Yeah, um, it's similar to the concern that I've heard expressed multiple times on um, back rent and uh, foreclosures in the housing market. And there was specific buckets of money set aside, $50 billion to help address the rent piece and, and additional money to address the uh, mortgage piece. Um, I don't see any evidence of um, a, a repossession backlog that is going to rapidly work through the system. One is our Mannheim folks are talking to um, our, our lender clients uh, daily and there is no, oh, guys, get ready. We're about to open the barn doors. Um, it's the opposite. Um, we're, we're reducing our expectations um, for what is happening from a, from a repossession uh, standpoint. Um, I, I do think that there's a little bit of when you, when you try to thread this needle of what I laid out earlier around this idea that the subprime consumer is likely being more supported uh, from an income perspective than they, than they ever have been with them getting to a position to be back to work and, and in good shape so that when that support ends, um, they're, still, they're still fine. I suppose there could be challenges uh, in the way that any accommodations um, are essentially uh, accruing uh, unpaid interest. But mm -hmm. from what I've heard indirectly from what both the lenders and the credit bureaus have, have been saying is that mostly the, the people who have been on accommodation have had their terms extended. And so there hasn't been like a backlog of suddenly there's a check due on top of the monthly payment that mm -hmm. has been suspended for some time. But so there's clearly some, some risk there, but the accommodation level is coming down and it's coming down at a pace that seems like we can land the plane without there being too, too much turbulence. Um, because looking at Equifax's numbers, the peak of auto loan accommodations was 8% uh, in June um, last year. It's been coming down every month. We're currently at about 2.3%. Okay. Normal is about 0.6%. So uh, that that's still a not an insignificant number of loans. It's roughly 1.2 million loans. And, and, and uh, but it's something that I think the industry can handle and work through. And if uh, I would argue to a regulatory agency worrying that um, lenders are aggressively going after these, I would suggest the data tells us, no, the opposite seems to be the case because we're not seeing them work through. And if there was ever an environment to, <laughs> to make that as attractive as possible. What we're seeing with vehicle values uh, would encourage that. But I, I, That's exactly I, right. I think lenders are working with their borrowers and uh, they understand the situation. So um, ask me again in a month and I'll see if the numbers have changed. Well, the one big thing that, that the, the uh, folks at the CFPB definitely agreed with us on was if we want to do our best for the American consumer to manage a, uh, a smooth landing, if you will. Um, communication is the key. So if you go silent on me and you, you haven't have missed two to four payments and there's no life 
you know, no pulse. I, I'm not getting an email. I'm not getting any response. They were, they were in agreement and they were saying, you know, check, check the CFPB website. We make a big deal about that. If you're going to deal with a situation, you want to be communicative with your lender. They really made that a big deal uh, point. And I was so pleased to hear that. I think even down to the smallest regional lender that just looked back one or two years, they did not have the financial wherewithal to put in place all these trappings that help you keep in great communication, omni-channel type communication platforms, texting, email, all integrated, right? TCPA compliance built throughout. So I feel safe in doing this. And if the consumers have those mechanisms to talk and because the price point came down, there's even AI solutions for credit that I think are going to, that, that have been coming down. I've seen them. I happen to believe that that had a big deal to do with this, but once the money dries up, and there's there's really nowhere to hide, and you know the deferral programs are really not kind of being offered anymore. I'm curious to see how much they just recoil and go back into a silent mode. In which case, that's your only that's your only recourse is to just go get the car. Yeah. And so that's 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 kind of the spike that I'm looking at. But if you're not seeing it in 30 and 60, you know, I just wonder about how much of this is superficially, not superficial, but you know what I'm saying. How much is this is a function, direct function of stimulus that is ultimately going to go away? So, you know, broadly thinking, when do you kind of put on change your view and say, you know, is it third quarter this year or, or you know, whatever the stimulus is obviously up? Like, are you targeting any kind of quarter to say, this is when I think we're going to probably see things from an equilibrium standpoint, take another hit, another impulse, and then we'll really have a better point of view as to where we're really going to settle in. I really don't. Um, I, I, I guess to to a certain degree, one very important time frame will be October, um, because uh, that is the point in which uh, provisions in the American Rescue Plan, especially with enhanced unemployment benefits and pandemic assistance, are set to end. And I am convinced that if the conditions are not such that unemployment is, is near four and a half percent by that point, there will be more support um, uh, provided. But judging what's happening with the vaccination progress uh, and jobs recovery that seems to be accelerating now, I, I think September is, is looking um, strong so I, I'm not worried about that creating like a speed bump that things um, materially change uh, the following month. Because the, the thing to work opposite that worry of, okay, suddenly the stimulus is, is no longer supporting is the fact that the jobs are expected to be recovered. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yes, you're removing a type of support, of income support, um, specifically government transfer payments, but in place of that is wages and potentially, um, I'm, I mean, I'm seeing news reports this week that are talking about um, service workers in the restaurant business uh, working, uh, getting sinus, signing bonuses, working extended hours because really? there's so much demand in parts of the country that right. are reopening that those, those consumers are, I, I just don't think you're going to see a big blip in income. Um, but to argue the counter side of that, I do think it's relevant to think about the prospect of, okay, last year was abnormal because of accommodations and support. This year is going to be abnormal again, 
um, because of accommodations. But I would wholly suspect if I'm a lender in this environment, I'm gradually eliminating all of those accommodations by the time we get to the end of the summer, because the, the reasons for doing that uh, are, are um, less argued for uh, given the, given the cir- circumstances. Um, so you'll have the accommodations coming down. You'll have less stimulus. You'll have people more supported by normal wages and, and incomes. But, but their behavior should also normalize too. And so that's the thing to think about. Uh, will we see a slow return to normalcy in delinquencies and defaults and write-offs and repossessions simply because we're returning to normal behavior? Um, and where that has been most extreme is in subprime. Um, yeah. there's, no, there's no question. So, so to a certain degree, and that's where setting the expectations of like an agency or the way a reporter is covering it in the Wall Street Journal is it is it is um, it is not the right approach to be claiming um, that we have a problem because delinquencies and and defaults are growing when the rate of delinquencies and defaults and repossessions remains low by historical standards. So my estimates right now, I, I create a default metric that to me helps to predict what the repossessions will be at um, Mannheim. And it's based on uh, the credit tiers in the loans outstanding and what we're actually seeing in the delinquency rates and default rates. Last year was a 2.2% default rate using that metric, which was the lowest in the history of the data that I have uh, going back to um, uh, 2004. and I think if you were to look at the Fed data and others, you would you would definitely draw the conclusion it was probably the lowest ever. Um, what it was in in 2019 was 3%. 3% was more normal. And in fact, the average over the last 15 years has been 2.9 or 3% um, most of the time. I'm expecting us to get to 2.7% this, this year. Um, meaning we do start to see the normal kinds of delinquencies and and default patterns, because again, there are reasons why subprime borrowers are subprime and precisely why the credit score is that way and why the interest rates they pay help to compensate lenders for that added risk. But it doesn't mean that it's out of whack with what we'd expect. If anything, that 2.7% is lower than what you would say is normal. Are there any other metrics that we haven't spoken about that we normally talk about with the economy? We talked about unemployment and its impact. Um, I mean, the couple that kind of pop in would be, you know, the ISM metric. It looks like we're 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 in very good territory there, well above sixty, which means they're buying and holding inventories and building up, loading for bear. And then you also have um, the uh, man. I'm brain fogging. There's again. consumer sentiment. Yeah. yeah which, you know, can be fickle and can move around uh, sometimes um, in a more volatile way than, than true behavior is. But I think it's extremely predictive of spending and what's going on with the, the consumer. Um, so I pay attention to that so much so that last year we shifted to using morning consoles data so I can see it every day. Mm. Uh, and um, they also are about to produce some additional metrics on, on how, uh, consumer uh, employment is being reported. So in essence, an alternative unemployment rate 
that lets you break it down by income levels um, as well. So I'm excited to be uh, starting to have something more frequent like that. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, if you didn't start this, if for folks that are listening, if you didn't start this already with 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 kind of a bullish feeling, um, if you don't have one now, I, I encourage you to rewind and and, and listen again. Um, I, I was. I was feeling pretty optimistic about everything. You know, when you when you look at I, I do look at some of these other reports. This one guy, Joe Chiaffi, he's with um Davis, Davis and Gilbert. Um, and he he does securities type stuff on the on the legal side. He has a survey where he asks market participants, the folks that originate, the folks that service, the folks that invest in ABSs, with ABS as the central point, hey, where do you think things are going? And they're kind of more of a bit of a pessimistic crew because they're always, you know, dealing with the messiness, right? They're the sausage makers, whereas we're just over here consuming the delicious, you know, sausage, um, and we don't have to worry about all that. Um, but Jonathan, I mean, a far more optimistic, uh, bullish uh, perspective on on the overall market. I'll give you the closing thoughts here because um, we're just about out of time. But what wh- what do you think for folks listening? We've got operators, originators, people purchasing in the secondary market, people wanting to grow their portfolios. You know, they're, they're kind of looking for some tidbits as to how to manage different things um, through now and, and the end of the year. You know, what are some of the kind of key tidbits you want to make sure that they keep front and center? Well, to, to, to have a balanced perspective and to keep risks in mind, especially for watching for the signposts that maybe maybe the optimistic view is starting to deteriorate. Uh, definitely keep keep watching the progress on COVID. Uh, we have to see evidence of reaching effective herd immunity uh, sometime late late this spring. And if we don't, then that revises some of the assumptions on what will truly happen with jobs recovery and economic activity in the back half of the year. And then we're back into a scene of, well, is Washington going to come through and support consumers and businesses to get us through to when we will finally be at the end of this? So I can't diminish that risk and the importance of of tracking it. Then I would start to say my worries about the future are more on positive things of it's too strong. Um, What what happens with wages? Do we create a wage inflation spiral? Do we see the Fed's favorite word now is transitory? Do we see proof that the inflation that is expected to come this spring and summer doesn't last or does it start to translate into a higher view of inflation because that will start driving rates higher. And when we see the 10 year above three, that's when I thought, I think you'll start to see some of the strong demand in, in, in uh, the automotive market start to diminish because it starts to influence the payment dynamics and financing is such an important part of affordability. Um, and then production. If you're worried about vehicle values and, and, and you don't want to bake into today's values lasting or today's residuals lasting or however you want to approach this from a lender, mm-hmm. um, then ask yourself, is there a risk that demand is going to be decimated? And I would argue COVID is the only thing that could do that um, over, over the near to medium term horizon. And then the other part of that equation is, of course, production. Is Are we in an environment where we could suddenly see manufacturers go crazy and and shoot for an 18 million SAR or something of that extent. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that we are in a different point in history that manufacturers are focusing on margins rather than volumes. 
they're dealing with electrification, they're dealing with a variety of factors that actually creates an assumption for a supply constrained environment, relatively speaking, for the foreseeable future. So I think you'll have less risk to values than we've been prone to in the past because one, we're at a major deficit right now and it's going to take overproduction and we can't even get back to a 16 million level of production to threaten that. So essentially, um, yes, there are risks. We can, we can name them, we can monitor them, but um, I, I, I feel very strongly that this year is going to be incredible and next year is not gonna be um, much different. Uh, maybe a little bit more supply and, and so not the crazy run up in values that we're seeing right now, but every other factor, especially from a demand perspective, should be very similar to this year. Outstanding. Well, we're living in interesting times, Jonathan. It's great to have uh, you know, fantastic minds like yourself helping to, to provide the guidance that everybody needs. So I thank you very much, folks. This has been a pleasure. Jonathan Smoke, he's the chief economist of Cox Automotive. Um, the website is coxautoinc.com, right? And that's where all your great work from you and your team can be found. That's right. Jonathan, looking forward to seeing you in person at uh, some of the uh, events. And uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks, Joel. The Consumer Five Podcast has been brought to you by Nortridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.